Welcome to Mariella Meets. I'm Mariella Frostrup, and each week I'll be bringing you a selection of the best interviews from our favorite guests. Movers and shakers from the worlds of art and entertainment, politics, business, music, and wider society. To discuss everything from their latest endeavors to career highlights and early beginnings. Intimate, in-depth talk with pioneering talents and fascinating folk discussing the stuff that matters to them and how they scaled the slippery slopes of success. As we cover the heart-wrenching Russian invasion of Ukraine, it's vital to remember and reflect on the Ukrainian people behind the news headlines. It's a thought echoing the words of London-based Ukrainian chef Olya Hercules, whose parents, brother and wider family remain in the besieged country. Despite admitting that she's been unable to eat or sleep since the invasion, constantly checking her phone for updates and messaging her family, her fundraising initiative in collaboration with UNICEF, Cook for Ukraine, has raised raised over £200,000 of emergency funds for the people of Ukraine. More than 200 restaurants have signed up across the UK, with people at home being encouraged to experiment with Ukrainian meals at home and organise supper clubs. Uh, thank you so much for joining us today, Olya. I wondered, first of all, if you could just explain to me how Cook for Ukraine works and, and what inspired you. Uh, sure. Um, so on the first day of the war, really, I went out to a protest and met my Russian friend, Alisa Timoshkina there. We've known each other way before we became food writers. Um, we were at university together and um, we just uh, stood there and cried and then decided that maybe crying is not going to be so productive and we actually need to do something. And um, Alisa and I both have been uh, a little bit involved with Cook for Syria as well. So we knew of um, their immense success and um, and we decided to create something similar. Um, so the way that it works, um, I guess, is that people cook uh, Ukrainian food all over the world. You can be a restaurant or a small catering company or just a, you know, a, a mother or a father who likes baking and want to do a, a school kind of like bake sale. And then, you know, you tag cook, cook for Ukraine and then um, we have a just giving page where all of the money will um, uh, go to UNICEF uh, and eventually help um misplaced you know, people from Ukraine. So yeah, so the, this is the project. And to be completely honest with you, Alisa has been incredible. She's been uh, leading uh, that project. Um, and on my side, I'm kind of just trying to post as much as possible about Ukrainian culture, just so people don't forget that, um, that we're human, that we also have uh, families and gardens and pets and we make food and we share it together you know it's just to keep people from getting that ukraine fatigue quickly you know which always happens and it's a natural thing you know headlines are extremely exhausting even to those who don't have direct links to ukraine so i think if people keep cooking they will keep on connecting with ukrainian people on a uh, much deeper level. So tell me a little bit about Ukrainian food, because I really don't know very much about it. I know we're told a lot about, you know, ironically, close ties between Russia and Ukraine, but are there close ties in terms of food? Are we talking about borscht and a lot of meat or, you know, tell me a bit about Ukrainian food. Yeah, um, well, you know, there's been kind of a bit of a stereotype where not just Ukrainian food, but all Eastern European food was kind of like put into this one basket, which is, of course, there are, you know, no Nobody, no, no culture has developed out of a vacuum. Everyone is so interlinked. 
Um, but there are definitely, uh, there's definitely regionality uh, within each country in Eastern Europe, including uh, Ukraine. As we now know, or as now people in the West are more aware, Ukraine is a huge country, you know, bigger than France uh, even. And, um, and it's as regional, you know, up north, you've got the beautiful marshes and forests and uh, the ingredients that are used are, uh, you know, almost similar to those in northern Italy, you know, like uh, boletus mushrooms, polenta, uh, you know, wild thyme um, is used quite a lot and little tiny sweet uh, wild strawberries and then um, you move through the center and into the south where I'm from and it's you know a completely different beast and uh, up up north and in western Ukraine you can't find um, you know for, it's very difficult to find for example coriander herb um, whereas in the south of Ukraine you go to a market and there are mountains of coriander purple basil tarragon you know it's very herb heavy it's um, there are tomatoes the size of my head. Um, there are huge peppers, aubergines. You know, it's very much kind of like Mediterranean and almost Turkish. Uh, there are loads of Turkish influences in the food, loads of like herb and garlic pastes. It's very vibrant in the summer. But then when you go into winter, um, you get these incredible fermented pickles. And, you know, we, we, we ferment everything. We even ferment whole watermelons in barrels, you know, so... <laughs> So there's, but all over Ukraine, um, there's this feeling of, uh, you know, all of the kind of like trend things like no waste and um, self-sustainability, um, you know, they're, they're rife still um, all over Ukraine and um, really guide our kind of food culture. Before we move on from food, and obviously not at the moment when it comes to Ukraine, but you know how in Britain, you know, Sunday lunch is a, a big tradition, isn't it? What am I having if I'm in Ukraine in happier times? It really depends on the on Let's the say region. the South. Let's okay, say the South. Let's say, let's say the South. Um, so, well, and where, where are we? We're in March now. So, in, you know, if it's still winter, my family would... If we were all to get together now, if we had this chance to get together today, uh, we'd probably have, uh, you know, one of my mom ducks who she rears. So, she, so, you know, you'd have this beautifully, almost like a confit whole duck. And then all of us would get together and make noodles. Um, so almost like, you know, your uh, Italian tagliatelle type thing. And, um, and it's all quite simple. So you'd have these noodles and then this duck cooked in its own fat and its own juices. And then you'd mix uh, this beautiful soft duck meat and crispy skin with these noodles. And you'd serve it with loads of vibrant pickles like fermented tom tomatoes or like a really nice honey kraut. Um, and, you know, that's just one of our favorite dishes, really. Really, <laughs> you really whetted my appetite. But I wonder, you know, we're sitting here and we're talking about, you know, what it would be like on a normal day in Ukraine, how it feels for you contrasting that to what you, you know, is happening there at the moment. I mean, it's a utterly devastating situation. I just wondered how you feel, whether you're frustrated or angry or sad, or I suppose maybe you run the gamut of all those emotions. Oh, yeah, it's exactly that. Um, I think we're all uh, people outside of Ukraine who are connected to Ukraine and the Ukrainians themselves inside the country are going through a massive, uh, you know, emotional ro roller coaster, the most intense I've ever felt in my whole life. So I'm going from complete devastation and extremely dark, self-destructive thoughts to the next day feeling the most powerful that I've ever had. 
to the next day going through complete numbness. It's like the most intense grief. If any of our listeners have ever experienced grief, a death of a, of a loved one, it's like that, but even more intensive that's possible. It's, yeah, it's all of, the, it's all of those emotions. And, um, but um, the most incredible thing is that the, all of my family and friends, whenever I talk to them, their strength is really remarkable. It's outstanding. I've only seen my mom cry once throughout this whole time. They're just like, don't panic and be strong, you know? I think that's the thing that's really inspired the rest of the world as well, you know, in response to this. It's just been, you know, how the Ukrainian people have showed such immense courage. Um, talk to me a, a bit about your family. I, I know that your parents are, are based in your hometown, which is 80 miles from the Crimean border. And at the moment, they're surrounded by Russian forces. How, how are they doing? Yeah. <sighs> uh... They're okay. Uh, the situation is changing there and it's extremely worrying. And actually, you know, I really wish that the uh, UK and world news have covered a little bit more about what's going on there. So they are uh, the local administration, for example, has been told to be prepared for a referendum. So that's by people with guns that came over. So the Russian occupiers. And um, but if people are saying no, just so people know, like the south of Ukraine is actually uh, in, in its majority of Russian speaking. Uh, but that's only because we've always been closer to Russia. So there's been a lot more influence on culture, language, eradication of Ukrainian culture, etc. But we've never been oppressed but for, for speaking Russian. That's just like a little side note. So now the Russian occupiers are saying that they're going to hold a forced referendum and people are still going out. My parents, everyone is still going out in the streets with flags and just saying, no, Kherson, which is my region, is Ukraine. My hometown is Ukraine. Everyone keeps doing that. But the repressions have started. And it's quite seriously, activists and journalists are being kidnapped right now all over my hometown and the Kherson region. They, they're just disappearing. And it's, um, I'm hoping that they will return. But it's, you know, a, a huge kind of campaign of intimidation uh, is beginning. And also people have been told if you come out to protest, you know, expect trucks with gunned men there to deter you. So there is this huge thing happening there now which, you know, I'm hoping that there's some kind of pressure can be put and those people can be released. So, but it's extremely, extremely worrying for me. So I presume the idea of the referendum is to pretend that um, this region willingly cedes to Russia. Exactly, uh, because it worked so easily in Crimea. But just so people know, um, a lot of Russians have been moving in and settling in Crimea for a very long time. So the indigenous Tatar populations have been repressed and Russians have been kind of settled there. So when the referendum happened, I actually believe that it was a legit referendum. All of the Russians living in Crimea wanted to be part of Russia. And that's fine. That's why we didn't kind of contest it. You know, that's why we didn't go fight fighting in there. But Putin's people think that the same thing will be so easily done just over the border in my area. But that's not true because we, you know, we, it's full of people like me and my parents and my friends who, even though we speak Russian, we feel intensely Ukrainian and very linked to our land and, um, and our family and our ancestors. And it's a completely different ballgame. You pleaded with your parents, I think, to, to leave Ukraine. They both have UK visas, but they decided to remain. Was it because they were determined to resist in this incredible spirit that, would, that we've been witnessing on a daily basis since the war started? Or did they just never believe it would escalate to the, to the point it has? 
maybe a little bit of both, to be honest with you, but I, even if they knew what, what would be coming, I'm 100% sure that they would have remained. Uh, my, you know, their words to me were, Olya, we haven't done anything wrong. Why should we leave our house? Why should we leave, you know, my mom's big garden and her allotment where she's still, you know, she's planting tomato seeds right still right now. Why should they leave their pets, um, their, their dogs and, um, and, and, you know, their ducks, etc.? They're just, they just don't feel like they should be forced to leave because as they say, they haven't done anything wrong. They're, they're being occupied and forced to do something that they don't want to do. But it must be so upsetting for you because I, I imagine all you want is them safe within arm's reach or, or do you understand, I mean, clearly you understand their point of view, but I'm sure you'd like to persuade them. I would. Uh, unfortunately, even if they wanted to, um, I don't think that they'd be able to leave. It's it's pretty much under siege, even though it's not as violent as in Mariupol with all the bombings. But um, there have been families that tried to leave in cars and they've been shot at. Um, so it's yeah, that's the situation. And whether I wanted them to, of course, I want them with me. But at the same time, I I definitely completely understand why they stayed and I admire them so much for it. Can they get food and, and, you know, are they still on mains electricity and things like that? Yeah, uh, the kind of the phone communication has been uh, breaking up a little bit, but in the past couple of days, luckily, it's been okay. The food um, situation is also still okay. And you know what's been amazing to see? That the local community is really coming together. So if in the past 10 years, because it's been so hard economically and everything, if people have been a little bit more individualistic and kind of like each to, to their own, now I can see this incredible community spirit uh, coming together. So my dad's uh, farmer friend, for example, even phoned me the other day and said, we're with you. Thank you so much. Keep doing what you're doing. And I want you to know also that I'm also not sitting around and crying. I'm taking sacks of flour and um, and milk to everyone who needs it. And, you know, we're all together and we keep fighting. So that was amazing to receive that phone call and to hear that kind of um, spirit uh, building up in my hometown. And what about your brother, who I know was setting up an eco-bike delivery service before the invasion in Kiev, I think, who now finds himself taking up arms in, in that same city? That must be, well, completely surreal for you. I was trying to think about, you know, if that happened with my own brothers before we talked today. And, and it, it's just so hard to get your head around that. Honestly, I, you know, this is I'm not even joking when I say a few years ago, I think I, I swatted a fly. And uh, and my brother said, you know, what has the fly done to you? You know, he's he's like the biggest pacifist kind of believes in the leaving things be. And yeah, and he's been doing, you know, he's gone from an eco warrior to to an actual warrior. And it's just something that I feel a lot of civilians in Kiev felt they absolutely had to do. Otherwise, they, you know, they they were just to give everything up. So, you know, but again, He's so composed and he's still smiling and he's sending me, you know, a video every day showing me how he's drinking coffee out of this Jacob's jar, you know, and and just saying that he's okay. And we managed to send them um, some boots and some vests and some helmets. So now at least he's not running around with his bare back, you know, in his jeans. So that's good to see. And um, honestly, his uh, composure and his... um, 
mood and his encouragement and support of me and the rest of my family has been uh, outstanding, really heroic. And I think his children are, are adapting to help out with the with the war effort as well. I mean, it's just incredible what people are doing. Tell me, tell me about your your nephews. Honestly, I don't know if it's um, uh, like a disassociation kind of thing that our brains do, but sometimes I feel like I'm in a computer game on like in a complete different dimension because yes, you're right. My nephews who are in their early 20s, they were with Sasha in Kiev at first, but then when they started shelling a lot, they moved to Western Ukraine where they're now with their 15-year-old sister. And uh, yeah, and they, you know, they've, they've already been spending time in bomb shelters in, uh, Lviv, in Lviv as well. Um, but they're not, again, during the day, they're not sitting around. They're kind of coordinating, uh, receiving help from abroad. So, you know, all of these things that are coming in, they're kind of like sending them not just to my brother's regiment anymore, but also helping other civilians uh, that have mobilized themselves. So, yeah, I've, it's just been, you know, really incredible to see which of course doesn't mean that I don't worry about them still I do worry about worry about them so much no and I think in a way actually being here although you're doing incredible things in order to 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 try and support in a way it must be harder because you must feel sort of I don't know redundant in a way which clearly you're not but but you're not in the thick of it so you're imagining what it's like rather than experiencing what it's like which probably is worse yeah, in one uh, way. Yeah, uh, yeah, and I'm sure I'm not the only Ukrainian abroad who feels the same way. And you know, if I didn't have two small children, I'd probably be there driving with my husband Joe to the border, and you know, being there with my nephews and my niece and supporting in any way I can on the ground. But actually, then I stop myself and I just think there are, you know, I have this platform and I have um, means to tell the world about Ukraine uh, on very different levels, and the, you know being its human face and also being able to tell my family stories. So I'm trying to tell myself that I I am enough and I can do this and we can do this, all of us Ukrainians. You know, there's a 20 million strong diaspora all over the world. And yeah, an invisible army, I feel. Yeah, yeah. And, and I know as part of that invisible army, you've been also raising funds. You mentioned supplies that you were able to get to your to your brother, um, you know, equipment, boots, bulletproof vests for your for your brother's regiment. And I think your husband delivered them to the border. Um, does that does that feel like does it give you a sense that you are involved it does. And just to, just a little side note. So this has nothing to do with Cook for Ukraine, because that's a completely kind of different part of what I'm doing. So this is very personal. Yeah, you know, my, my husband didn't go as, as far as the Ukrainian border, but he's, um, he's helped to deliver a few things around um, the UK. Um, but yeah, no, it, it feels, you know, from kind of being in a complete desperate uh, state when I received my brother's first phone call two days after the war started when he's saying I've joined the territorial army but I have no protection for my body and I don't even have boots you know from being kind of like this is the end you know from panic and mobilizing myself and starting to do everything and then seeing him and his colleagues um um wearing protective gear it's it's a whole different feeling and yeah I I feel like I am I'm doing something and it, it feels good. You mentioned that your um, nephews and your niece are in Western Ukraine now, so uh, hopefully uh, a bit further away from 
the fighting. But uh, the UK's new visa scheme is going to allow Ukrainians fleeing the war um, uh, to work in, in the UK and have full access to state benefits and so on. Um, are, are you hoping to get some of your family out? I am. I'm in the process of, um, I, you know, even though Western Ukraine is safer, um, they are starting to uh, drop bombs in Western Ukraine as well. And I just feel like I'd really love to get my niece out of there. I think the boys are going to stay. Um, but um, yeah, my niece, Asia, I want I want to bring her to the UK, to be honest. I So I just started the process yesterday, so I don't have anything to report yet, but I'm going to study the new the new implementations uh, this week and see what it's like. And if uh, something's lacking, I'm sure that I'm, I'm going to be talking about it uh, in the future and trying to help. I know that um, I think 89,000 people in the UK have signed up since yesterday uh, to house Ukrainian refugees. That's on the on the first day, which is pretty spectacular. But there has been some criticism of the fact that UK householders will have to name refugees uh, they wish to sponsor. I'm not sure I quite understand that. What, what do you make of the new scheme? Yeah, I don't. Yeah, so I, I I need to. Today is the day when I'm actually going to look through it really uh, properly. My concern is that, first of all, the British public have been incredible. I've received so many emails just like that, just people saying, "I live in a beautiful small place in Scotland, and I would like to." Or you know, I'm just near London, and I would love to host a whole family of refugees. Incredible people, amazing. I'm worried that the new scheme is kind of like getting the responsibility off the government's shoulders and kind of like putting it onto the British public. I'm not 100% sure. I'm just going to um, make sure that I studied thoroughly um, this week. And then, um, yeah, we'll definitely write about it. Yeah, I think um, Lisa Nandy, the the Shadow Community Secretary, uh, has raised concerns over sort of matching Ukrainian families to sponsors and and claimed that the government was suggesting people should sort of advertise on Instagram via a DIY asylum scheme. I mean, look, it's difficult, isn't it? It's difficult in in every way. Um, But I wonder if, if that feels a little bit uncomfortable. Uh, yeah, I just wanted to very quickly uh, mention this, um, this this sanctuary foundation to anyone who is listening and wants to help. Um, it's um, www.sanctuaryfoundation.org.uk. And I feel uh, like they are doing a very good job at coordinating people who want to take the refugees in and, you know, that side of things. So sanctuary foundation to anyone who's interested, I think they might be able to help. The number one selling product of its kind with over 20 years of research and innovation. Botox Cosmetic, out botulinum toxin A, is a prescription medicine used to temporarily make moderate to severe frown lines, crow's feet, and forehead lines look better in adults. Effects of Botox Cosmetic may spread hours to weeks after injection, causing serious symptoms. Alert your doctor right away as difficulty swallowing, speaking, breathing, eye problems, or muscle weakness may be a sign of a life-threatening condition. Patients with these conditions before injection are at highest risk. Don't receive Botox Cosmetic if you have a skin infection. Side effects may include allergic reactions, injection site pain, headache, eyebrow and eyelid drooping, and eyelid swelling. Allergic reactions can include rash, welts, asthma symptoms, and dizziness. Tell your doctor about medical history, muscle or nerve conditions including ALS or Lou Gehrig's disease, myasthenia gravis, or Lambert-Eaton syndrome and medications, including botulinum toxins, as these may increase the risk of serious side effects. For full safety information, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. See for yourself at BotoxCosmetic.com.
Olia, I, I read a, a fascinating um, article yesterday uh, by a, a correspondent called Johnny O'Reilly who was talking about uh, Putin's sort of existence in an alternative reality of his own creation and, and that he's managed to to expand that alternative reality right across Russia. Um, I think you, you actually have an uncle in Russia who believes the Ukrainian language and culture is not real. It seems incredible in this day and age, but 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 it but but possible to completely deceive an entire nation. Yeah, I mean, to be honest with you, it's such a painful topic. But um, yeah, so my mom is um, uh, one of six. She's the youngest daughter, and her the youngest kind of brother, um, this uncle of mine, you know, they've been the closest uh, siblings throughout their lives. Um, he used to be an incredible human being who's, you know, into philosophy and yoga. So not at all like your, your typical military man, even though he went to Moscow to study in the military academy. Um, so super gentle, amazing guy. And then, um, and he married a Latvian woman there. They had two girls and they've been in Moscow ever since. And you know what? Since the Putin came to power from very as early as 1999, we've been kind of really perplexed about some of the things that would be that they'd be saying um, when they would come and visit us every summer in Ukraine. Um, you know, including one day my dad, um, you know, called Putin Putik, which which is literally just like a diminutive. It's not it's not even a swear word. You know, he's just like joking around about Putin. And what my cousin, who was 15 at the time, burst into tears like this tiny little criticism of Putin upset her so deeply. It, it you know, it's if, if anybody knows about how Stalin was revered by, by some people and, you know, the children would burst crying if somebody said that Lenin or Stalin were actually murderers, you know. So that wasn't even my dad saying that Putin was a murderer. Um, so that was like kind of alarm bells going off for ages for us. But we were just like, OK, you know, well, you know, just ignore it, whatever. And then it was 2014 and my uh, uncle's wife and my cousins started posting on Facebook, uh, calling Ukrainians Nazis, saying that we're killing the children of Donbass, etc. You know, and we were like, are you for real, <laughs> guys? It's us. Um you know, it's it's not real. What are you doing? And they were just not convinced. They just they just kept on posting and posting. So we, I kind of like severed all the contact with them. And then my aunt died from pancreatic cancer in 2014. And my uncle came to her funeral. And that's when, you know, my mom was just in complete shock because after the funeral, he said, oh, but, you know, Ukrainian language is not a real language. You know that, right? And we were just in complete shock. And ever since then, I don't know, I guess they would kind of call each other from time to time, my mom and my uncle. But but the, ever since this started happening, he hasn't even texted me to ask, how's how's my how are my sisters? How am I? You know, how's my brother? How is everyone? You know, so it's painful. And it's but it also shows that despite Putin's lack of charisma, I mean, I personally don't see a streak of charisma in him. But how did he? managed to get into people's heads so much that even a son of you know of his parents who are my grandparents who have gone through Stalinist repressions who have gone through you know Holodomor uh, be, you know being sent to the edge of Russia as a prisoner that's my granddad he knows all of these stories and still he bought everything that he's been fed in Moscow through TV so I don't know what to say really it's I'm still holding hope that maybe he's changing his mind as I'm saying all of these things, but 
I really don't know. I don't know what to say. It's fascinating and also depressing. I mean, the, the article that I referred to when I when I asked you that question, you know, talks about the fact, and I suppose we forget that, that Russia has been run now for over 20 years by, by ex-KGB agents, you know, who are absolutely trained in the art of psychological warfare and who, you know, have understood how you can infiltrate a whole nation's sort of consciousness uh, without people really necessarily being a aware of what's happening. I mean, it's probably why it's all the more extraordinary. I'm sure you've seen it, that footage of the editor, a producer, I think, who, who ran onto the set of a state-controlled Russian TV channel with an anti-war sign, uh, Maria Oisianikova. I probably pronounced that really badly. Um, <laughs> But, but but do you think that you know your uncle is is one side of of that story? Do you think there are also huge swathes of people in Russia who are against the war, but you know aren't superheroes like Maria? Um, I'm I'm sure there are. I'm sure there are so many people uh, that don't want the war and don't actually want Putin, but I think they're also extremely scared. Um, so you know, yesterday's uh, TV situation i really hope that that's real i really hope that that it's it, it will make russian people come out and protest in million in their millions because i sometimes i feel like that's our last hope that you know that putin is actually toppled from within um but i don't know i just i'm not sure i just hope that people will eventually find courage and come out and realize that actually there are not enough places and prisons to put millions of people in. There's just no way. And, you know, we've done it in Ukraine. We've done it, uh, you know, in 2014 when we toppled Yanukovych, literally two million people came out in Kiev. And what are you going to do? You know, it's, it's a huge force. People can be the power. So I'm holding everything crossed that that yesterday was a um, sign that things are changing and we, there is hope that he will be toppled, really. And going back to your own story, you've talked about cooking as an act of defiance. Um, can you elaborate on that for me a little bit? Uh, yeah, I'm, I mean, to be honest with you, at, at this very moment, I'm finding cooking extremely difficult. Normally... Normally cooking for me is definitely like an act of self-care and and a therapy, especially if I do anything to do with dough or making bread, you know, anything that's super tactile, it helps me so much. Um, and But I realized that, you know, when it's extreme stress like this, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm at the moment I'm unable to eat properly and also I'm unable to cook. I'm hoping that it will change, you know, your your, your brain kind of gets used to all sorts of situations. So hopefully... I'm going to be able to pick up my rolling pin as soon as next week. But but yeah, in terms of other people and, um, you know, it's cooking is, is a huge part of our culture. Our food is a huge part of our culture. So whatever happens, I'm going to be cooking forever and I'm going to be teaching my uh, sons um, to cook uh, in order to pass on, uh, you know, a massive part of um our culture and ancestry and, you know, their beloved grandparents. How are your sons feeling about what's happening? I don't know what age they are. Um, the little one is too. So I think, uh, you know, he understands on a kind of uh, just an energetic level that something's wrong, but he doesn't really understand what's, what's going on. And my older son is almost 10 and he's been absolutely incredible. 
Uh, he's seen me in some states, to be honest with you, uh, last week, and uh, he would just come over and give me a massive hug and say that everything is going to be okay and that I'm doing a good job. And he's just been, honestly, like, he's just been incredible. Thanks for listening to Mariella Meets with me, Mariella Frostrup. There'll be more from the podcast next week, so make sure to download the free Times Radio app to never miss an episode. And don't forget, you can catch the live edition of my program every Monday to Thursday, 1 till 4 on Times Radio. Catch you next time.